message, but it wasn't clicking again, and I thought, nah, it's too much repetition. We'll come back to this one later. Go to the next one in the series. So that's what we're doing. And we're talking about what fear does to marriage. How many times in our relationships with others and in marriage and beyond have our fears motivated us? I was thinking a little bit this week, what does fear look like? Boy, it takes a lot of different looks. But I remember one look that was rather humorous. We were at Timberley Christian Center, which is sort of the, the Wisconsin counterpart to Camp Shamanaw, free church camp. That's in the southern part of the state, near East Troy. And um, they have a nature center there. And it's, a, it's a really well done. They have uh, school groups from all over the state come around the year for retreats there. Not Christian groups, just school groups. And there's something subtly evangelistic about it because their literature's up, their staff is there serving them in the name of Christ, and it's a really good thing. But they come because of the Nature Center. And in the Nature Center, they used to have, anyway, when I was around, they had three boa constrictors, each in his own little aquarium. One was named Noah the Boa. One was called Julius Squeezer. And the other one was named Charmin. You remember Mr. Whipple? Don't squeeze the Charmin? Seemed like an appropriate name for a boa constrictor, right? So I was there with a bunch of guys. I think we were on a retreat or something. There's a bunch of guys from our church. And we went into the nature center at feeding time. Just happened to be there when they were going to feed every, all these critters. And they, they took a, it was either a, a small lab rat or a large mouse, white mouse, and they opened the lid of the aquarium and threw the mouse in. You want to talk about nervous? The boa constrictors is laying there asleep. And the mouse, I think, began to get an idea of what was going on. He seemed pretty twitchy. I guess I'd be twitchy if I were thrown into an aquarium with a boa, boa constrictor. We were all laughing. I would look down. It didn't look like the mouse was laughing. Can you imagine this? The boa constrictor is laying there, unmoved by anything, looks dead almost. Every once in a while the eye would go like this. And the mouse is getting a little more nervous by the second. One of our guys with us was born and raised in Virginia, and he had this fairly heavy southern drawl. And he looked at that and he says, I think what we're seeing is a visual demonstration of fear. He was right. Let me tell you another illustration of fear that I experienced this week. And I was nowhere near the actual scene. Somebody sent me a link. And it showed a guy, a climber, a guy that would climb these tall electronic towers. Uh, about as far as I can go in terms of my knowledge of this stuff. But well over a thousand feet high. And this guy had to climb to the very top of this thing to make corrections in some of the electronics that were up there. And they had a head cam on him. And I was holding on to my desk by the time this thing was over. I don't like heights. This is about as high as I'd like to go. Till the rapture comes, this is good enough. But this guy did part of his climbing with no safety attachment. OSHA approved. And every once in a while, they'd have to take a rest. All they had at this height was, it was like a, like a very, very thin rod or something with these, these uh, what do you call them? 
rungs sticking out the sides like big spikes. And he would climb, and when he got tired, he would stop. Then he would hook up his safety catch, because you couldn't climb, obviously, with the safety catch hanging on this thing. And in addition to all of this, he's dragging behind him, 20 feet below him, is his work bag attached to his waist with a rope. He couldn't carry it with him, so he had to drag it up behind him. This thing's swinging in the wind, and this tower's swinging in the wind, and I'm going... That's not my idea of a good Saturday afternoon, a way to spend my time on a Saturday afternoon. Fear. I would be so fearful, I'd have never done it. But this guy evidently did it with a certain sense of aplomb. And it was all approved. He was, he was well within his right, his limits of you know, keeping OSHA happy. Not me. How many times in our relationships with other people whether it's marriage or beyond, and this message easily applies beyond marriage. How many times have our fears motivated us? Think about it. It's pretty startling. The biblical account of the first human couple gives us insight into human behavior and fear and how it can affect our relationships right from the start. So if you're in Genesis chapter 3, we won't spend a lot of time there, but we'll get a start there. Here's just a little sampling. Here's Adam and Eve. They had just made the big mistake of doing the one thing God had told them he did not want them to do. They ate, they ate the fruit of the tree of good, you know, evil, evil knowledge and evil. And the result, you look at 3.7, the result is clear. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. By the way, let me throw this in. There was this guy that was preaching a sermon, and he preached from a manuscript, and he was preaching along, and he said, and Adam said to Eve, and he turned the page, and something was out of order. It didn't make sense. And he didn't know what to do. He got a little nervous, so he kind of backed up and said, well, maybe I had two pages stuck together. So he backed up and repeated the last line or so. He said, Adam said to Eve, same thing. So he turned to somebody on the platform and he said, there's a leaf missing. (laughs) Well, as I was saying, um, the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, whereas there had been no shame and no self-consciousness, now there was. The account goes on. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, listen, And I was afraid because I was naked. So first there was shame, something they had never, ever known. Now there was also fear, something they'd never, ever known. Probably a lot more than we realize it, fear motivates our behavior. Catch this sentence now. Fear motivates our behavior. Did you know that in the Bible... 
There are over 300 references to fear. Be thankful and we're not going to cover them all today. Over 300 references to fear. When, motiv- when fear motivates us, it usually, we don't, usually don't like the results. Today we're just going to pick three things that we can fear, what they can do to us, and how they can affect our relationships in marriage, as well as beyond marriage. For instance, we can fear our faults. When we're caught in a fault, defensiveness is often our first reaction. We can become defensive when we're caught doing something and we're at fault. We all blow it once in a while. And when we do, someone else points it out to us. And what's our first and natural reaction? We defend our behavior, don't we? Isn't that kind of the natural way we go? Illustration. Doris and I, in my first disagreement as a married couple, I remember it well. It's the only one we've ever had except for the last one, which I think was yesterday. We had just gotten married. We'd taken a few days in northern Minnesota for a honeymoon, but the honeymoon was still on. We were driving to Michigan for our first assignment in ministry. I was going to spend a year, sort of an intern program type thing, internship kind of thing, uh, as an assistant pastor in a church there. I'm 21 years old. I've never really driven pulling a trailer before. We had this little 62 Tempest. And I'm pulling a trailer, and that's not fun anyway. Then I take the wrong exit off the freeway, and I'm trying to turn around on a two-lane highway in traffic, pulling a trailer, and my wife is going to help by pointing out my mistakes. (laughs) How did I react? Well, obviously with maturity and humility and agreement, right? Not too right. I exploded. I was full of rationalization. I was justifying my behavior. I was just too immature and insecure to admit that I'd made a mistake. And I don't think I'm alone. I think this is a most this is, would describe most of us when we're found at fault. Notice Adam's response to his mistake. He he responded like a man. He blamed his wife. Listen to it. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Listen to the man's response. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. You notice he not only blames the woman, he also blames God. The woman you put here with me. We're good at this, aren't we? Some of us have it down to an art form. It would be tough to admit our faults. It's a lot more fun to help others see theirs. The only way we make progress in our marriage, however, is to face our faults. Are you, here? Are you with me? Face our faults head on. Sometimes in marriage and our relationships we reach an impasse. We get stuck. And all of us have been stuck at one time or another in our relationship. And often the reason we can't grow and to deepen in our relationships beyond a certain point is because we have not directly faced our own faults. Fear and a failure to deal with our faults only causes problems. Never, Very seldom does anything good come from it. It also perpetuates them. When we ignore an issue, 
or we pretend it doesn't exist and we continue in the behavior, the problem and also sometimes the pain just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We're right back to the illustration we used a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember it? If you weren't here, let me remind you. If you were here, well, if you weren't here, let me tell you. If you were here, let me remind you. The arrowhead illustration. We start out marriage like this. We're tight. Things good. Things are good. Living the dream. But inevitably, we drift. Something happens. Maybe nothing happens. We just are aware that we've been sort of out of touch and brings us back together. That forms an arrowhead. But it's inevitable we're going to drift. And what happens is people drift far enough, often enough, long enough, they lose the energy. So they just begin to live out here. They don't come back together. This is where life is sweet. This is where it can become anything but sweet. And the idea, of course, is to keep the arrowheads small. It's inevitable they're going to take place. They're going to, they're going to be there. But to keep the arrowheads small. When we do something about our faults, we admit them, we acknowledge them, we're not afraid of them. We can grow in any relationship. Let's go on to another one. We can also fear our feelings. This is a little tougher to describe, I think. We're pretty much in touch with our faults. Some of us are not in touch at all with our feelings. Let me give you three boilerplate verses of Scripture. I said there were over 300 in the New Testament that, about fear that will apply here, but they'll apply far beyond here as well. But these are good verses to put in the memory bank, whether the issue of, is fear of feelings or fear of something else. Isaiah 41.10, So do not fear, says the Lord, I am with you. It's a mouthful right there. Do not be dismayed. I'm your God. I'll strengthen you and help you. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. The hand of strength. Look at Isaiah 41, 13, just two verses down. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, do not fear. I will help you. And then one of my favorites is Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You remember when we preached on this, I don't know, about a year ago or so, from uh, the, Paul's epistle to the church at Philippi? We talked about the fact that what we need to be in regular practice of is trading in our anxieties, trying on faith, and as a result, we can walk in peace. That's really what the verse is saying. Let's talk about fear of feelings. If we're out of touch with our feelings, we may also be out of touch with people. One of the outcomes of the fear of feelings is we can become distant. So the outcome, one of the outcomes of the fear of our faults is defensiveness. One of the outcomes of the fear of feelings is distance. And often it's the, often it's the man who's charged with being guilty here. Usually it's the guy, it's kind of a stereotype, but it's the guy that's seen as being out of touch with his feelings. But that's not always the case. 
We're going to talk a little about this. I'm going to, I'm going to share a little transparency with you here. Doris and I were in a small group while I was in seminary. And we were talking about marriage and lot, relationships, basically. And one night in the small group, I made a pretty snide remark about Doris. I don't remember what it was. I hope she doesn't. I, don't, I really don't remember. But it wasn't very nice. And the leader's wife said, she interrupted. And she said, Doris, how does that make you feel? Doris said, well, I feel like he was unkind. The lady said, wait a minute, I didn't ask you what your opinion was. You just gave me an opinion. I wanted to know how it made you feel. So Doris tried again. And again, Carolyn said, Doris, you've given me an opinion. I don't want your opinion. I want a feeling. And then she said, Carolyn said, I'll tell you what. She said, let's role play this. I knew I was in trouble. She took Doris's role and she responded to my remark. She said, you tell me what you just told Doris. I'm Doris, play, let's play the role. You know how it goes. Yeah, I knew how it went. She said, Russ, when you say that to me, I feel minimized. I feel embarrassed. The lights began to go on and they began to explain. We both learned something about the need and the means of expressing our feelings that night. Not our opinions. Opinions are good, but that's not what she was asking for. And I wish that I could say that I've done a much, much better job at this. I tend to be a little more verbal than Doris. I know you're surprised. And if I'm not careful, I can ride roughshod over my wife's feelings at times. But at least we've identified a problem, and I think that there's been some progress. Hasn't there, dear? Where is she? <laughs> we need to learn how to express our feelings. Now here's a tip about identifying and expressing feelings to one another. When the feeling expressed is followed by the words like or that, what's going to come out of your mouth next is not a feeling but an opinion. It's not wrong to have or express opinions, but if feelings are important at all in a relationship, it's important to be able to identify them. We need to name them. I feel cheapened. That's a feeling. I feel exhilarated. That's a feeling. I feel like you're mean. That's an opinion. What we're trying to get after here is how do you really feel about that? And here's the point in all of this. The better we can identify and express our feelings to one another, the deeper we can understand and know how to respond to one another's emotional needs. You get the point. And what is a relationship if it's not this? We need to be able to relate to one another at a deeper level than just how are things? Shallow, surface, superficial. We talked a little last week about different levels of communication, and I think I named five. Let's simplify the list. There are, there are, you can break this down into three as well. The most shallow is when we talk about trivia. What weather we're having? How about those Vikings? Yeah, how about them? Did you hear about so-and-so? 
The next level is when we talk about ideas. Well, my opinion is this. I think this. Here's what I'd like to see happen. The deepest level is when we're able to identify and talk about our feelings. When we get to the place where we know how to express them, our feelings, we can put the finger on our feeling, and we found someone who is willing to listen and understand them, I want to tell you, we have all but arrived. Now we're in a position to forge the deepest bond two human beings can know with one another. And hopefully that bond will be with our mate, but that ought to at least be our goal. And I know a lot of people who cannot get in touch with their feelings. And it's probably true of all of us at one time or another in our life. But let's just try this little tool. I feel, and then name what you're feeling. Then the other person can come back and unpack that. Let's, let's talk about that. When you feel exhilarated, tell me about it. What's going through your mind? What, what's, going, what's happening on the inside? Does this make sense? This helps us to connect. Now, feelings are neither right nor wrong. They're just there. The failure to express them, however, can cause them to grow. And we're right back to the arrowhead illustration again. Our fears can grow right along with our inability to express them. John Powell wrote a book some years ago now, Why I'm Afraid to Tell You Who I Am. And he lists in this book some feelings that frighten us. We all have fears. Hurt feelings, he says, frighten us. We don't like to admit we've been hurt, so we deny it. Something wrong, dear? No. Are you sure? Yeah. Everything's fine? Mm Mm-hmm. But on the inside, we're just dying. Negative feelings frighten us. So when we're angry, we deny it. I am not angry. I am not raising my voice. Right? Been there? Done that? Here's an interesting one. According to Powell in his book, sexual feelings frighten us, so we don't talk about them. Surveys show pretty conclusively that as many as 80% of American couples are dissatisfied or frustrated at one time or another with their physical relationship and marriage. One of the reasons is that they can't or don't share their opinions as well as their feelings with one another about them. Or they share them in destructive ways. That's what the stats say. Where are we? And again, what can happen when we fear and fail to share our feelings? We can become distant. Remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the marriage map. One of the stops on the marriage map was distance. We've got to guard against it. We do not want distance in our relationship. We want close proximity, oneness in our relationship. So we can fear our faults, over which we become defensive, and other things. We can, share, we can fear our uh, feelings, over which we become distant, and other things. We can fear losing our freedom. One of the outcomes of that that is we become demanding. We become engaged in a battle for supremacy. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve knew and lived in a perfect environment. 
We can't even imagine this, but they did. They knew no shame. They were not uneasy at all. They didn't know anything about uneasy self-consciousness, evidenced by their lack of clothes or uh, their choice of clothes or their lack thereof. They, they knew no insecurity. That all changed. Several results of their disobedience to God are listed in the Genesis account. We're picking just one slim one, but it's big. Eve told, is told of her husband, he shall rule over you. Very telling statement. Whereas they had known no rivalry or insecurity, now there was going to be a battle for dominion and control. None of us have ever known a perfect environment. Not the kind of environment that Adam and Eve knew. But we've all experienced the battle for dominion. What's one of the chief issues in marriage or any other relationship? Control. Why do we yearn for it? We're insecure. We suffer from feelings of insecurity. That's only one evidence, but it's a vivid one. Here's a fact. You can bank on this. We will never know a perfect environment in our present world. It's a no-brainer. There will always be issues over which we have little or no control. We will always have to deal with some feelings of insecurity in our relationships. But we can work with each other so as to minimize those feelings and have a more secure relationship with one another. And the first step toward that is to realize something about marriage, and it's namely this. When we got married... We may not have known it, but we were agreeing to give up some of our rights. Both the husband and the wife agreed to do that. One of the steps to a good marriage is when both partners yield their rights to one another. When I was on staff with the Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Chicago, my boss was a guy that I admired greatly. He played backup quarterback to Roger Staubach at Navy. He was a jet pilot in Vietnam. He got shot down, badly wounded, almost taken prisoner by the Viet Cong. And he got airlifted to safety through a helicopter that came in and dropped the rope and took him out of there. But I would say, hey, Bruce, we'd be at a conference or something, you know. And I'd say, hey, Bruce, let's go, uh, let's go toss the ball. Let's go over and see what so-and-so is doing. And most of the time he'd say, let me check with my wife first. And my first response to that was, what's the matter with you? Are you uh, tied to her apron strings? Then later I realized, no, he was honoring her. He was honoring her. When a person in marriage tries to control the other, the one who's controlled feels trapped, or if they, if they, if they, in, in, they inadvertently begin to minimize the other, the one who's minimized feels trapped. They feel pushed. And they'll start pushing back. The result is an alienation, a distance between us that can go, if it goes long enough, to the point where they're just kind of sharing the same house together. We've said that so many times during this series. Meaningful relationship is gone. Now, if that's what you want, you can run on that track. That's not what I want. Not what most people who get married want. When we get married, we don't lose our freedom. 
it just takes on a new dynamic. Russ Morfitt sent me a link this week, and I wish I'd have brought that to the pulpit with me, about the covenant head in marriage. You know, in Ephesians 5 it says a wife should submit to her husband, and guys over that, they get up and cheer, you know, yeah, come under subjection. That's not the idea behind that at all. A few, few verses later, he's told to love his wife as Christ loved the church. That's what she's supposed to be able to submit herself to. And she's called to respect him. It's a dynamic of relationship. It's not a loss of anything. It's gaining of everything. It's, it's, it's two learning to function as one. There's nothing like it. And yet, so many marriages go without it. So here's some good news. We can do something about our fears. And we're just going to talk about three things today we can do about our fears. These are first steps in the right direction. But they're important first steps. First of all, we can be honest with ourselves. Let's not play the denial game. Do we have faults over which we've become defensive? Maybe the person to ask about that is your mate. Let's be specific about it and name them. Do we have feelings that we have stuffed or have, have had difficulty expressing that threaten to put a distance between our mate and ourselves? Let's identify them and learn to relate to one another on a feeling level as well as on an opinion level. We need to listen to each other in our marriages. Do we fear losing our freedom over which we've become demanding? Let's own up to our insecurities that make us sometimes so controlling or so minimizing of the other. And again, Scripture gives us some good guidance regarding this issue of honesty. I want to read you one verse in three translations, because each one says something dynamic, I think. First, I think this is from the NIV, it's Proverbs 28:13. He who conceals his sin does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces his sin finds mercy. Now let me give it to you from one of the paraphrased versions. It reads like this, short and sweet. You can't solve a problem until you first admit it. The Phillips translation puts it like this. If, you pretend that we're, if we pretend we're perfect, we're living in a world of illusion. True. So we need to be honest with ourselves. And it's, it's a good thing for mates to sit down and talk about this. We can even ask each other about this. We need to be honest with God. That's number two. When we agree with God that a behavior is wrong, and we admit we've been guilty of it, and we apologize to Him for it, it produces great results. It brings cleansing and a chance for a fresh start. This is what we call confession. Now, confession is not a formal thing. Now, we're not talking about something formal here that we, you know, we go somewhere and confess our sins and then we're told how to work off our sin. No, this is a personal thing between ourselves and God. It's the God who wants to help us get better and be better at living life. Here's the biblical foundation for it. This is a very familiar verse, but let's Praise God. Treat it as though it were new. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
Think of the dynamic of this. This hit me like a ton of bricks one time. The issue was my own lack of assurance relative to salvation. I was coming out of chapel when I was going to North Central University. And all these guys who talked about was with such confidence going to heaven. And I thought about me and my own insecurities and my own sinfulness and I had no assurance I was going to heaven. I had accepted Christ, but I had no assurance I was going to heaven. In 1 John 1, 9, God used it. I saw it, and like I'd never seen it before, I saw that kind of a transactional thing there. If we confess our sins, now that's my job. Nobody can do that but me. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. That's his job. Nobody can do that but him. If I do my job, God will do his job. And what's the result? He will cleanse me of all unrighteousness. I thank God that I saw that. I've thanked him time and time and time again throughout my life that I can depend on him. He's bound himself voluntarily by his word. If I confess my sins, he will forgive me of my sins and cleanse me. In our marriages, do we need this? Do we need honesty with God for some of the dumb things we do to our mates? Yes, we do. So let's practice honesty with God. This act of confession isn't something we do so that we can fill God in on something he doesn't know about. (laughs) It's simply admitting to God or agreeing with God about a matter of which he's already aware And ultimately, it's letting us know of our dependence on Him. It's agreeing with God over an issue. That's what we're doing when we confess our sins to God. We're agreeing. He already knows. We're agreeing. Yeah, you're right. I'm guilty as a judge. No personal offense to any judges here. Second, or thirdly, we can be honest with our spouse. Often we feel that if we share our faults or our feelings with others, they'll think less of us. Most of the time, it works just the opposite. Their esteem for us goes up. It's not being transparent and not being vulnerable that drives people away from us. It's being proud that does the damage in a relationship. Now, most of us could use a little help on how to relate to one another in more helpful ways, so I've jotted down three that I think would be helpful to us today. Three, three pieces of help. First of all, we can read books that help. I want to recommend one. If what I'm saying to you today strikes, strikes a, chord of, a chord of resonance and response, this may be a book, good book for you by Gary Smalley and John Trent, The Language of Love. Among other things in this book, it's a book on how to quickly communicate your feelings and your needs to one another. Secondly, why not get together with others and talk about this? We already have a, the mechanics of that in place, the community groups. I understand that a number of the community groups are using their community group. In fact, I understand this is supposed to be what they're all, they're all doing. They're using their community group as a sermon-based reflection so they can discuss the message and massage it into your life That would be a very helpful thing to do for people who are married or not married because this applies to other relationships as well, to talk about it in your community group. And the third thing you can do 
is to go to a seminar. It's amazing the help that is available for our marriages today. Forty years ago when I got married, there wasn't much out there, really. I don't know where we were as a church, but we were doing a lot with children. We were doing a lot in terms of evangelism. But we weren't preparing people for marriage very well. We weren't there after they got married very effectively. There are marriage seminars that you can attend. Take a look at this video because there's a marriage seminar coming up that you can take advantage of. It's called A Weekend to Remember. And Dennis Rainey talks about it right here. Let's look at it. I think in America we're in need of returning to our spiritual roots. When we think about getting married, where do we go? Church. Isn't it interesting? Uh, 75% of all marriages occur either in a synagogue or a church. And uh, uh, if we go there to start our marriage, uh, it's kind of like the billboard I saw one time uh, that was in Houston, Texas that said, loved the wedding, would love to attend your marriage. Signed, God. And the idea is, is that every marriage, as it starts, needs God, and as it is maintained over a lifetime in raising a family, needs God. When we have children, what's one of the first things we talk about? Where are we going to take them to church? What's going to be their moral foundation for life? How are they going to know how to love? How are they going to know how to forgive? How are they going to know how to get along with another imperfect human being? And personally, I think... Um, uh, Americans in the midst of the clutter and our affluence and our materialism, I think we have uh, we've chased after lesser lesser gods, and we've left the one who has given us a blueprint for building a marriage and a family. I think every marriage has a blueprint, and as a couple gets married, the husband brings a blueprint, the wife brings a blueprint to that marriage, and in most cases, the blueprints are not the same blueprints. If you built a physical structure with two architects, two sets of blueprints, you would get some pretty strange looking structures. And to me, it's no wonder the divorce rate is what it is. And so what we do at our conferences is we actually give couples a single set of blueprints from which they can build. And the cool thing about our organization is because it's been around since 1976. There's hardly a week that goes by that I don't run into someone, someone doesn't call me, someone doesn't write me an email, a letter, text me, who said, I attended the conference and got the blueprints for building our marriage in 1983, like a guy did yesterday. He said it completely altered the direction of our marriage and our family. And we're still, we're still living off those blueprints. So the issue is the blueprints are not man-made. They are the result of studying the Bible, which is the bestseller of all times. They're not one person's interpretation of, those, uh, of the scriptures. They are a, a combination of dozens of scholars, men and women, who've looked at the Bible and we've lifted it out and created what I believe is the finest training package that's available today for marriages and families. I know this. We have six children. We've told them all. When you get married, you're going to a conference where we're not speaking because you need those blueprints. You need together as a couple to know what they look like so you can develop a common vocabulary, a common set of plans, and you can have a common purpose for your marriage into the future. And that, that, can, that can encourage a couple to go the distance.
So the long and the short of it is we can add a touch of depth to our marital relationships. There's help. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, there are people who get married who never get along. Their marriages are like long, destructive war zones. We don't want that to be true of our marriage. It's true there are going to be battles. It's true there are going to be disagreements. But it's also true that we can work on our relationships and improve them significantly. And that's what we pray for for Elam today. That's what we pray for for everyone within the sound of my voice. Help us, Lord, to deal with things like the fears that motivate us, whether it's a fear of our faults or our feelings or loss of, of um, control. Help us, Lord, to yield ourselves to you, both of us, and have a deeper, more meaningful relationship, one that's a reflection of your character. Now, Lord, we pray that you'd bless the Lord's tithe and our offering as we have waited to receive it at this time. We pray for this congregation. We pray that you'd help us. We pray today again for one of our own who's lost his mate this week, Jay Arnold. We pray that you'd bless him as only you can. Uphold him. Be the wind under his wings as he adjusts to a different kind of life now. May we be there for him. In Jesus' name, amen.